Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Kyle Fryant. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thanks for having me. And we're going to start with prayer, and Kyle is going to offer the prayer, so we'll just turn it over to Kyle. Right. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this opportunity to speak this evening. Please help that we'll be able to have our words guided by thy spirit, that we'll be able to speak of Christ, that we'll be able to help all those who listen to feel of his love for them. Please help us to be mindful of those at the margins and the most vulnerable and to live up to our baptismal covenant to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We're so grateful for the beauty of this earth and for the privileges we've had in our own lives. We're grateful for the opportunities we have to contribute to our faith and our church. We ask a blessing upon the leaders of our church that they'll be attuned to the people who are struggling and towards those who need help, whether they're in our faith or not. And we're so grateful for the gift of Jesus Christ, for his atonement and for his resurrection. And we say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us for Kyle's prayer. It's a great spirit as he prayed, and I hope you felt that spirit. <clears throat> Kyle is, I'll introduce Kyle, then I'll let Kyle let us know if I miss said anything. So Kyle is um, 21. He grew up in central Utah. He is the oldest of six, six sons in his family. He is gay. He served a mission. Um, he's an early return missionary twice. <laughs> We'll talk about his mission in Bulgaria and his mission in Pittsburgh, and we'll kind of just do a chronological story of his life, um, weaving in his journey with the church and journey with his sexuality. Kyle stepped away or became a little less active, um, and now has come back to be active, um, and we'll kind of talk about that journey. Kyle's at Utah State, close to graduation, with a political science degree. He will graduate at 21. Way to go, Kyle, for getting a lot of <laughs> academic stuff under your belt, and we'll go away to law school. And just has this wonderful life ahead of him. I became aware of Kyle through social media. We're connected on Facebook and Twitter, and I've been reading some of your stories and just thought, what a thoughtful young man who's navigating really complicated space as a gay Latter-day Saint and um, early release missionary and processing some of the complicated things of our church and hanging in there. And I just thought it would be honored to have him on the podcast to share his journey um, as he's doing the very best he can in his life. Um, anything you need that I've misspoke at this point, Kyle? Uh, you, you said too many nice things, but <laughs> it seems pretty accurate. Tell us where you grew up. So I grew up in Richfield, Utah, and then we moved to Monroe, which is like 15 minutes south. It's down in Sevier County, um, rural Utah um, in Monroe there. Uh, less than 2,000 people. It's a very small, tight-knit community. Uh, lots of um, farming and, and things like that that go down there. And, and Did yeah. you grow up in a family that was on the farm? or 
Uh, I did not. We did. Uh, when we moved to Monroe, we made some attempts at farming. We, we had chickens and we had cows. Turkeys? Um, I'm thinking of turkeys for some reason. We did not have reason. turkeys, no. Uh, but we did have chickens and cows, and they were a handful. I'm absolutely petrified of chickens to this day. They're they're the absolute worst creature. In... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, we tried our hand at farming, and we're, we're not the farming type, but we tried our best. Tell so. us some... Um... Yeah, I I think I've been to Monroe. How far is it away from Moroni? Um, I Are think, those close? Am I thinking of something else? Yeah, so it's San Pete County is Moroni, yeah, and then it's, so it's about an severe, hour so south. Thinking, yeah. Tell us about um, your sexuality. When did you become aware that you were gay or just different? Share with our listeners your journey there. You know, I've been asked this question, and and trying to nail down an age is difficult. Um, I think I probably started to realize that I wasn't, having those, uh, I wasn't expressing or feeling the feelings my, my male friends were feeling for girls, uh, in, in probably about third grade. Um, I, I just seemed to realize that that wasn't something that resonated with me. And then growing up, even, even until my mission, I just assumed that I was a late bloomer in that regard. Uh, and just that suddenly something was going to snap into me and that I'd, I'd, be attracted to women. And, um, I, I, I think I started to realize that I was having the feelings for men that my, my male friends were, were having for women about the time I was 12 or, or 13. Um, but it, it wasn't something that I wanted to acknowledge or, or admit. So I kind of just held out this hope in the back of my mind that, you know, this is that I was going to bloom into it. Did that put you in a dark spot emotionally or were you okay throughout your high school years? Yeah, I, I was. I, I tried to, you know, put it off as, as much as possible, not think about it. And always, I think, and I've heard this from a, a lot of people who, who are who are gay, who go on missions, this this idea of a mission being a transformational experience for one's sexuality. Um, so I never really took on the, the label of gay or thought of myself as anything but straight, even though I didn't have any attractions towards women and, and was only attracted to men. But um, I, I assumed that, you know, that it was just all going to work at its place together. I was doing everything I was supposed to as as a latter-day saint and um just just made that assumption so it it wasn't really the source of a lot of emotional uh toll for me during during those years simply because i assumed that it would naturally progress towards what it was quote-unquote supposed to tell us about your interests in high school um, I've always loved politics. Um, always been super involved in politics. I, I remember when I was, I think 13 years old, I, I was the county coordinator for a candidate for Congress and At my, 13? yeah. And my mom had to go and borrow a, a tablecloth, uh, from, from a neighbor because we had the congressional candidate over in our house. And, and my mom said something like, you know, usually people bring their, fr- like, your 13-year-old son brings over uh, his friends for pizza on paper plates, but me, I have to get a tablecloth for a prospective congressperson to come to my house because apparently 13-year-olds aren't famous for being that intimately involved in politics. But I always love politics. Um, I, I love to read. I love to um, just read it, read as much as possible uh, about as much as possible. Um, and, and the church was really a, a big thing for me as well. Um, I... 
I, before my mission, I probably read the Book of Mormon two dozen times or so. And, um, you know, I was in a very rural community, and I think at heart I'm a fairly urban person, uh, but my connection to my—the church was really my connection to my community. Um, and so that was a very, very big thing for me growing up, especially through my teenage years was, you know, even though I didn't necessarily resonate with people in terms of my interests, uh, I'm not a big hunter, and that's very important down in those communities. And— um, and you know things like that but i still had the church as my connection to my community and and that was quite nice and something that i i I cherished and was very involved in talk about um just did you come out as you were processing your missionary papers did you come out to anybody or did you just feel to use i think your word which i like the transfer i can't now i can't say it you just feel like after your mission or during your mission, this this feeling would end. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I didn't really see any need to mention it because uh, I, I was just a late bloomer in, in my straightness, and so, um, yeah, there there was really no no need to mention it on my end. So I, I, ne- I never did, and and like I said, I never identified myself as anything other than straight in in my mind. And I, I, you know agree with you. I, I hear some people that come out earlier, come out in the mission process, interview process, and I've just heard so many stories, and you probably know this better than I do. It's everybody's on their own journey, mm-hmm. so I don't look at it as a sign of weakness, or you weren't owning this, or you were... Conf- I just think you just were doing the very best you can, and it's not like you can counsel with 20 other people about how you're feeling mm-hmm. to know how to walk this road. So I think you did just great. Yeah, exactly. And I think also, I mean, being anything other than straight in, in the church is a very difficult journey. And so, you know, really being sure for yourself that that's a label you want to take on, I think is, is very important. And I think some people do that earlier than, than others, like you mentioned, but, uh, definitely processing it and, you know, making sure that you want to identify yourself with, with a label that, puts you kind of on a a more difficult road if you want to continue your membership in the church. Tell our listeners where you went, um, your first mission. (laughs) So uh, I got my missionary call to serve in the Bulgaria Sofia mission. Um, and it was honestly a little bit of a stunner to me. Um, I remember I, and you know, for anybody listening who may be opening a mission call or have a kid opening a mission call, I, I made the mistake of, of, uh, having a bunch of people come over and I was, I was pretty much in shock when I opened my mission call. I wish I'd opened it by myself beforehand to, to be able to process those emotions. I remember my young men's president, a couple minutes after I opened my call, he came over and he showed me uh, the Cyrillic alphabet, which is the alphabet they use in Bulgaria. And I was like, not only am I learning a different language, I have to learn a different alphabet. And it, it was a, it was a tough call opening, but um, to be honest, I, Looking back, even though I was very strong in the church, I don't know if I had this really burning desire to serve a mission. It was definitely the sense of responsibility, like this is the next step in your checklist of Mormonism. Um, and so I, that's just kind of how I proceeded. And so I, I opened my mission call, um, and it was it was really hard. And then a couple of weeks after... Just explain to our listeners why it was hard. Was it the language that was hard? Was it the country? Just explain what was hard about it or it's just I know that's a hard area to find converts Mm. Um, to talk to or share with our listeners what was hard about it you know I think if I'd opened my mission call and it had been to Nevada or you know even another mission I still think I would have been very overwhelmed Um, but I think just this idea of 
having to go so far away to do something that I wasn't entirely sure I wanted to do was very daunting. Um, I always love learning, so I wasn't terribly concerned about having to learn a language. Um, but I, I was very concerned about just going so far away to do something that was so incredibly daunting to me at that time as missionary work. And so I think I would have been overwhelmed either way, but the distance definitely is really honest. overwhelming feeling. That's very honest. Um, tell us about the MTC and then going to Bulgaria. So uh, I think it's important to note before the MTC, I kind of came into some church history and doctrine uh, information and a lot, a lot of things. It, it was like a cascading effect. And I remember um, after, and so I, uh, and I was also coming to terms with my sexuality at this point. And I would go to the temple all the time trying to just get the doubt and get my sexuality just to go away because I, I knew I was going on a mission and I needed to do that. Um, and it really led to a really dark place. And I remember very vividly during that time, I I knew I couldn't tell my parents I wasn't going on a mission. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I don't know how long I'll be able to last. Um, and I, I think that was in the back of my mind. It was. It definitely wasn't at the forefront. But I definitely was thinking two years is a really long time because I was not sure about the church's truthfulness at that point. But I knew the church was good. And I think that the, that's... Uh, I think those that's a, the more important aspect, knowing that the church brought goodness and that it had it was my family and so I was willing to proceed. Um, but yeah, it was a really hard months in preparation for my mission. And then when I got in the MTC, I remember I made it about seven hours, uh, and then <laughs> uh, I laid down to to go to bed that night and just woke up in just bawling at like two in the morning on my second day of the MTC just completely overcome with this sense of inadequacy and the sense of I'd always been that kid growing up who who knew all the quote unquote answers to all the, the church questions. And here I was not knowing in the MTC. And I remember I wanted to drag the zone leader in the MTC out of his classroom several times that day and ask, can you let the MTC branch president know that I want to go home? But I think I had this sense of shame about this idea of I've been in the MTC for less than 24 hours. That would be kind of pathetic. Um, and obviously, as someone who's come from a mission, home from a mission early twice now, I, I kind of have gotten over that stigma. But it's definitely there, this idea of your your self-worth is, is premised on your ability to finish two years. Um, so... The MTC was a roller coaster, but I was in a in a district of of people who were amazing individuals who really I think showed me what it looked like to live the gospel and to be examples of Jesus Christ, and it was and and they made it worth it. And I um, several times during that that time, I I talked to fellow missionaries about some of the doubts I was having, and I never got any answers. But I always felt loved, and that was enough to to keep going every day. So then I, but always in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, going to Bulgaria is what's gonna gonna get my doubts going away, and it's gonna fix my sexuality, which is kind of funny because I assumed going to the MTC would do that, and I assumed getting my mission call would do that, right? But uh, I I thought Bulgaria would be the when, once I got there that it would be the thing that ultimately would be my aha moment in all those things. 
I loved what you, your fellow missionaries did for you. Uh, that was so helpful. They didn't answer your questions, um, but they heard them and they just showed love. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even try to answer them, which was so great. And I think to anyone who has a family member who's doubting or struggling, like pretending that you know the answers and going in there with this, I'm going to answer all your questions mentality. It, it honestly does more harm than good, but just showing love validating the things they're feeling, even if you don't feel those things yourself. How did they show love? I mean, they, they explicitly uh, told me that they, they loved me. Um, cool. they, they also told me, which I mean, as like an 18, 19 year old man, like that you, you, you don't tell a guy you love him. Right. But they, they knew that that's what I needed at the time. And, um, I don't know. It's just, I just felt loved. I think that just the way that they acted towards me, it was super loving. They didn't even need to use words most of the time. I, j I could just feel it really strongly. That's cool. So you fly to Bulgaria. So I fly to Bulgaria. Um, That's not a nonstop flight from Provo, Utah. It is not a nonstop flight. It was, I think, like 24 hours or something like that. It was very, very long. Um, we landed there and I met the mission president and his wife, I met my trainer and I was very gung ho that, that first day I was like, this is really cool. The culture is really awesome. Sofia is an amazing city. It's, it's such an awesome city. And, um, so I, the next day, my second day in Bulgaria, we got assigned our trainer and I was going to go to Starzagora in Bulgaria, which is in, it's in the middle of the country. And I was going to be companions with Elder Brown. And it, it was really exciting. I mean, it's, it's very exhilarating to, to be in the mission for the first 24, 48 hours. Like, I, I think that's a, a really cool moment. And it's kind of what you've been living your whole life for, right? As, as a Latter-day Saint Mel is like, you're, you're going to go on your mission. And it was like the, it, it that it led up to that moment of getting off the plane in in Sofia, Bulgaria, and it was really cool. And tell us more about your mission, Elder Brown, your first area. Yeah, so um, I was in Starzagora, and um, the first two or three weeks were fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed myself um, getting used to the culture. Uh, Elder Brown is one of the funniest people in the whole world. Seriously, the best trainer I could have possibly had. He was so funny. Um, super outgoing, super great with the language, super encouraging, always just made me feel really, really validated as a, as a human being. And that was really awesome. I really appreciated that. Um, but then I think three ish weeks into the transfer. Oh, and also in like my second week, Elder Brown was giving a, a mission wide training. So in like my second week in, in Bulgaria, we, we traveled the entire country for a week, which is a really cool thing to go around a whole country in your second week in the mission. And, um, that was really awesome. But then I think my third or fourth week, I, I just remember all the doubts just came rushing back because I hadn't really answered any of them. I didn't have any answers for them. And so they just came back to me. And I remember it was a Sunday night and I just woke up just like with tears in my eyes, just like so unsure um just like felt like it all had come crashing down again and that's hard because really hard. i like i thought i had it all figured out um and so i i woke up that sunday night and just just cried until morning and then obviously monday was preparation day and we went to 
the uh, the church where we emailed, and I sent my weekly letter to my mission president, and I said, President Barclay, um, I don't know if I want to go home, but I just like want to know what that process would be like. And he called me later that day, and um, eventually he convinced me to stay um, and continue onward. But during my time in, in Starzagora, which was two transfers, so about three months, um, I probably called or told President Barclay that I was going home almost a dozen times, I would guess. Um, there would be probably about every week or so I would tell him that. And he is the most loving Christ-like man. Honestly, if I were a mission president and a missionary, about the fourth time they told me they wanted to go home, like I'd be like, okay, good. Like Here's your ticket. You, you can leave. But he was so patient, so loving. And every conversation I had with him, I felt like he made me feel like Bulgaria needed me. And that I was the best thing that had ever happened to Bulgaria, which honestly was not true at all. But he he validated me. And it goes back to my, my MTC as well. He, I gave him my questions, and he never gave me an answer to my questions, but I always felt so loved by him, and I always felt like he respected my questions and my searching. He wasn't trying to, to push it aside. Uh, thanks for just being so honest, Kyle. It just takes so much courage to come on this podcast and share what you're sharing, and the honesty of crying the second day or the first day in the MTC and uh, here in Bulgaria, I just think that's a sign of strength that you can talk about that, not a sign of weakness. It's just so respected for you for being so honest. Thank you. I think it's a sign of strength. And I love mm-hmm. I love a line you said your mission president said to you, we, you know, Bulgaria needs you. Mm-hmm. Um, what a thoughtful thing to say. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Bulgaria probably didn't need me right i i mean there was uh there were tons of qualified missionaries who could have gone and learned bulgarian and served as missionaries but he he had this concern for the one he cared about me and he cared about my needs and he cared about me feeling value in my life it definitely wasn't a, a business-like corporate transaction with him he cared for you talk about somebody that you felt like you helped in bulgaria um, I, my, I remember in my first area, we, uh, were able to meet with this, this woman and, um, she ended up getting baptized. Um, cool. And that's in, in Bulgaria, that's it's rare. <laughs> baptism is very rare. And so getting one in your like second transfer is like, it, it definitely wasn't, wasn't my work, but, um, I was able to really just like, um, connect with her and, and help her and, be with her and that was that was really cool to see someone who's whose life changed um and who changed as a result of the gospel and i think it's a it's a testimony to how wonderful the church can be for some people um the experience i saw with her and then when i was in sofia my second area i um was able to um there was a a refugee uh, who had had come to Bulgaria and was living in Sofia. And I remember just befriending him, and he was one of the most loving, compassionate people you'd ever meet. And so honestly, I don't think I helped anyone in Bulgaria, um, but I definitely I was think helped you did. by them. That's great. 
Talk about, I think you served eight or nine months total, maybe two in the MTC and six or seven in Bulgaria. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just kind of walk us through, was it kind of gradual or was it, did something kind of suddenly happen where your mission ended? So yeah, my second area was in Sofia and that was my mission president obviously was so concerned for me that he moved me back to the mission home where we saw each other every day. So that was nice. Um, But I... I remember when I was in Sofia, I had a, a week. We were traveling around the country for a Christmas concert, and a few of us missionaries uh, were, were were doing those Christmas concerts, and um, and that was that was actually a really cool experience to be able to, you know, talk about Jesus through music because I, I love music. Um, but I remember I told him on the second day of that trip, I told him I can't do this anymore. I don't remember what it led up to, but I just couldn't. I was so defeated. And so I told him that and he's like, okay, well, that that's just fine. But will you wait till the end of the week? <clears throat> because the the 70 who was presiding over the Eastern Europe area was going to come. And Elder uh, James Martino, I think is his name. And so Elder Martino and I were supposed to meet like for 10, 15 minutes and we ended up meeting for, I think, like an hour and a half. Uh, and I just laid it all on him, every single doubt or concern I'd ever had pretty much. And just like President Barclay, honestly, he he didn't really have fantastic answers, but he showed a lot of love. And he told me that I would be, I think, something like a dynamite missionary, something like that. And I was really reinvigorated from that conversation with Elder Martino. But then I, I moved to my third area of Sleven, and while I was there, I I hit such a low emotionally and spiritually. I felt when I woke up in the morning, I just would not want to move the, it just felt so it felt too difficult because I I wasn't sure if this was where I was supposed to be because I still hadn't addressed my doubts I had all the self-loathing for not being that perfect missionary and so I eventually my mission president <clears throat> had gone back to America for some medical care and so I think him not being there was the catalyst that that led me to call the the person who was acting in his status mission president and, and tell him I was leaving. Um, and, and I think that his absence, I think if president Barclay had been there, um, I, I probably would have continued, but, um, his, his absence definitely led me to, to really decide that that final step of going home. Um, thanks for hanging in there as long as you had did. Um, I don't know what Heavenly Father would say to you on that flight home if you were sitting by you. What do you think he'd say to you? Um, I was an emotional wreck on the flight home. I'm sure people who saw me just like this American could just like laying and in tears probably were like, what's going on with him? I think that Heavenly Father would have have sat with me. And, you know, I I like to think that the way we show Christ and, and our heavenly parents is through our actions and, and going back to the MTC. I don't know if Heavenly Father would have said anything to me, but I do know that he definitely would have sat with me. He definitely would have validated the way I was feeling. I always wonder the perfect words to say to an early release missionary like you or anybody that I know. And, you know, my the thought that came to my mind is you did the very best you could and you didn't do anything wrong here. The measure of your heart, Kyle, 
was always to do the right thing. There's nothing, I don't sense any rebellion in you. I don't sense a desire not to do what's right. I sense you did the very best you could. And a, and all these different sort of factors came together in, a, in just a darkness that was not safe for you to continue to be there. And it was outside of your control. It wasn't a spiritual weakness. <laughs> um, and so I think you did the right thing by coming home. Um, tell us about coming home in those six months and then going back out. So, yeah, the I remember um, I went up the escalator in Sofia. And the second I went through security, I realized that I that going home was not going to solve the doubts. It was not going to solve the darkness. So immediately I wanted to, like, find a phone to call the mission home and this was like six in the morning like nobody would have been up but call someone and have them come get me and i was i was rushing around the airport like a madman looking for a payphone looking for something like that it's interesting and uh like crying and it was not my proudest so you're moment. torn you were torn between yeah. wanting to stay and and not staying well i guess i just like thought kind of like going on a mission like that going home from a mission would be the the catalyst towards fixing everything that was wrong in my life, right? That there would be this one decision I could make that would make it all better. And for some reason, when I got to the top of that escalator and went through security, I like, I realized that, no, that going home from your mission is not going to do that. Just like going on your mission is not going to fix everything. Um, and so I, the second I landed in Salt Lake City, and I, I, I was in the car with my family going home, and I, I leaned over to my mom and I said, "I'm for anybody who asks, just home for a little bit, and I'm going back out on my mission." And my poor parents—they had to read my miserable emails every single week for months. Um, and so I'm sure for her it was a bit of a shock to like. I mean, I'd just come home. I'd had all these emails that were not very happy sounding, and to say like you're going back out there like whoa and so i got released the next morning and i told my state president i said i'm i'm going back out um and so i guess i just resolved from the second i got home to go back out because coming home had not fixed everything right and so for some reason and i this i don't know why my mind worked this way i was like well then maybe a mission will fix it again right um so while i was home i, I started to confront my doubts that first month and that was a scary place because sometimes it means getting down in the weeds uh, to resolve things um, because things are complicated. Life is complicated. History is complicated. Um, and so I kind of just like zoned out, to be honest, um, and just stopped completely researching anything into into my doubts, um, which may for some people may be the best best way of going. I you know, whatever someone's path is. But for me, um, it was not a, a good thing as I learned later on. Um, but during that time, I remember I'd been home for about three months and that's when I, um, texted my best friend in the middle of the night. I don't even remember what led to this. And I came out to her and I'm sure it was the most pathetic text ever. It was really, really long and really awkward. Uh, and hopefully I've gotten better at coming out since then. But, um, I couldn't sleep. And this is at like one in the morning. And so she had gone to sleep. But in the back of my mind, I had this thought since she wasn't responding. Like, right. well, if my best friend who is 
very seems like an ally of lgbtq people like if she's gonna like never speak to me again like how would anybody else deal with this right and then of course she was sleeping and like at eight in the morning like sent me the super nice text back right but for that seven hours it was this really grueling thing like whoa like what am i supposed to do um but and then i'm vulnerable just trusting somebody you care about with this piece of information yeah takes so much courage and it's a testament to her honestly the fact that I was comfortable enough to tell her that because honestly it wasn't until I came home from Bulgaria that I acknowledged it to myself. So the fact that so shortly after that, I would feel comfortable enough with someone to share my truth with them is like, I, it's a big testament to how she is as a human being. Um, and then I, a couple of weeks later, I, I came out to my mom and, but I still was planning on going on a mission. And so I, I didn't want to deal with the nuances of my doubts in church doctrine and church history. And I didn't want to deal with the nuances of my sexuality. So I immediately backtracked and, uh, from my sexuality and, you know, proceeded forward to go on my mission. And then in July, I came home in January and then July, my stake president called and said, you've been called, uh, to go out to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, um, he was like, and the transfer starts tomorrow, so you would be leaving tomorrow. Wow. And <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So in less than 24 hours, I got my mission call and was on a plane to go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which honestly, I also had the option to wait six weeks for the next transfer. And I don't know if I would have gone <laughs> because I would have had more time to process it and write a pro-con list and stuff like that. But I had to take decisive action in that moment. And so I decided to go um, and... It was um, fantastic. My first three weeks in Pennsylvania were some of the happiest in my life. Like, I love talking to people. So, like, just going around and, like, talking to people. And it was awesome to talk football with people. I love football. So I would talk about the Pittsburgh Steelers with lots of people. And that was tons of fun. And um, it, it was amazing. And my first three weeks were some of the happiest weeks of my life there, there in Pittsburgh. I, I loved it so much. Um and I had a, a wonderful companion, Elder Whitehead, really, really great guy. And he was in the last two transfers of his mission. Um, and I was very impressed because most missionaries at that point would be fairly chunky, but we, we worked very well together, loved talking to people and, and worked really hard and saw lots of success in those first few weeks in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> yeah, and just keep, yeah, I know you were there for about uh, three months, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so keep just sharing that journey in Pittsburgh. Yeah, so then um, I, after three weeks, I I felt like I was holding myself back from my mission president. Um, we were seeing great results. We were in a very difficult area, but um, seeing fantastic results. And I was like, you know, I, I want to be an even better missionary. So I decided to come out to my mission president. and um, As gay. Mm-hmm, and, you know, tell him about things I had done, which were fa- fairly minor things, I think basically things any kid at 19, 20 years old had done in their life. But, um, as a result, it led to a a lot of, a lot of dark times for me during the next month. It was kind of ambiguous as to whether or not I'd be allowed to stay in Pittsburgh. And that month was the hardest month of, of my life. Honestly, um, every day was a, was a struggle to continue to not just work, but to live. Honestly, I, I was very, it, it was a struggle um, because I'd failed once, I'd come home from a mission once. And so this idea that I'd come home from two missions, um, 
And this one, like my first release was an honorable release, but this one would not have been honorable. And so I, I, we love to label things as humans. And so a dishonorable release just seemed like the end of the world. And honestly, ending my life seemed like it would prevent a dishonorable release. Honest. Um, so this was the darkest spot you've ever been in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it was really hard. Um, I just like, I didn't eat. Um, I would wake up in the morning and just like pretend to pray because I, I just couldn't with God at that point. I would just lie in my bed and, and just cry. Um, and honestly, I cried so much during this time that really tears didn't come out anymore just because I, I cried so much that I think I cried all my tears out for, for the month by like the third day of this, this process. But then I was allowed to stay in Pittsburgh and that, that kind of made my spirits go up a little bit. Good. Um, and so we, we got back to work and, um, but then <laughs> the doubts came back. So I, you know, dealt with the, the sexuality part and that, that went terribly wrong. And then the doubts came creeping back. And so at this point I'm like, well, I don't know what I can say. Um, so, and my companion, I kind of filled him in on where I was in terms of my beliefs level. And I remember during lessons, um, I I basically seemed like a historian in the things I would say rather than testifying of of the church. I remember once that I, we were talking about the Book of Mormon and I I I said something like, "Well, Joseph Smith said that he got gold plates uh and he said that he translated them and to make the Book of Mormon and that's what he said. And <laughs> I'm sure that's not a very powerful missionary thing to say, but that's where I was at at the time. So um, I'm sure people around me probably were like, this, this kid's on a mission. Why? Cause I was, I was not very decisive in the things I said about the church. Um, but I kept going. And then there was a general conference talk that was given that um, was very difficult for me. And so I, I sent a, a message to my mission president and I, and I told him that it was difficult and I came out again. Originally when I came out to my mission president, it was as um, a same gender attraction. Um, it was not the gay label. In fact, he explicitly asked if I identified with, with the label gay and I, I told him no at that time just because I, I kind of wanted to backtrack the second I called him as I had with my mom and my friend. Um, but I... I, I sent him my concerns, said I was gay and, and, and things like that. And um, a few days later, he sent me a face or he called me. This was over Facebook Messenger that I sent him a message and he called me. It was on a preparation day. And he said that I was um, that he had a ticket for me to go home in the next day. And that honestly was a bit of a stunner because um, he hadn't replied to my message or anything like that. I, I, I saw that he'd seen it, but. I was like, I, I'm not entirely sure what he's going to do with this information. So I was very surprised that that was the outcome. And I do not, I can't fault him. I was very angry at him for a while, but I can't fault him. Um, he's in a precarious position of managing a lot of different missionaries and having a missionary who explicitly says he doesn't believe in core truth claims and who is openly gay. Like that's a, a pretty significant thing. And so I, I can't be angry at him for that, but I was for a very long time. It's honest. Um, and um, you know, if I were in his shoes, I don't know what I would have done, but I, I can just extend him grace now, um, and know that he was trying to do what he thought was best. Um, but I was, I was done, honestly, 
that was the the cat that was the nail in the coffin of of my my church experience for some reason i i just thought well um i went through this very suicidal time as coming out as gay and i have all these doubts about the church so why why even try and to be in the church so i remember when i was was going home i rather than wearing my uh white shirt and tie and my name tag i i put on sweatpants when i got on the plane because i wanted to be comfortable and i really didn't want to have anyone talk to me about mormonism because if they'd asked i wouldn't have had many nice things to say about it so um i landed in salt lake city and um you know i i was pretty much dumb at the church at that point and started coming out to some family members um were you released dishonorably I was not told that I was released honorably, um, and I, when I was released from Bulgaria, I had a, a letter saying that I'd been honorably released, and I never saw one from, from Pittsburgh. So it was just kind of left undis. Yeah, I don't know if you're given a letter you're released dishonorably, <laughs> so I don't know how that works. That'd be an interesting letter. I may. <laughs> I guess we don't do that. That'd be we a nice just... little token. Like, here's my honorable release letter. Here's my dishonorable <laughs> release letter. Um, but I think, so maybe you just got no communication. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I was a, yeah. Uh, so, um, but I started coming out to family members um, and conveyed to a couple people that I had doubts about the church. And I think what's hard um, is my faith crisis happened before I started dealing with my sexuality. The concerns I had about church history and doctrine came before that. I think a lot of people think when gay members of the church have faith crises independent of their sexuality, like, oh, it's just an excuse for them to, you know, go and live the gay lifestyle. And I think that that's probably how a lot of people felt. But I honestly had dealt with this huge amount of, of problems in, in church history and doctrine before I dealt with my sexuality. They were two different things. And I think that was hard for my family and, and some friends to accept the fact that I wasn't just wanting to go out and and be gay. I like also had concerns about, about the church, and it led to several altercations with family members. Um, I was not very proud of my behavior during that time. Um, I definitely could have extended more grace. Could have been a little, little less, not less open, but a little less blunt. Um, I definitely did not act in a way that I'm proud of, and. I think that it, as a result, lessened some relationships with family members, and I think that's so unfortunate. Um, there's no owner's manual, Kyle, for the road you're on. <laughs> um, I think you're doing a good job of articulating the complicated path you're on. You've, you know, you've intended to serve a mission, and you've done a lot of stepping into faithful decisions by getting on those planes and going to those countries and doing the very best you can and being honest with your sexuality, honest with things that don't sit well with you in the church and and coming home and now managing this. It's just a unique road you're on. And so I think you should give yourself some grace, even though you say you could have handled it better. And um, there's no owner's manual for that. And um pretty thoughtful young man at 21 to be talking about it in these terms. So just keep telling more of your story. It sounds like if I'd met you back then, I I would assume I, you would have 
I would have gotten the feeling that you're going to leave the church and mm-hmm. you're sitting across the table here and offered this beautiful prayer and are a member and, you know, active in the church. So just share with more of how that all came about. Yeah. So um, I got home <clears throat> and honestly, I lived at home because uh, it was October. So the semester obviously had been going. So I lived at home. And uh, so I think that that prevented me from going all out um, for good or for bad. I, I don't know for for good or for bad, um, but I so I would go to church with my family on Sundays because it's easier that way. I think it's easier to suck it up and go for three hours than explain to your five younger siblings and your parents why you're not going to church that day. Right. But I did. Um, I worked at, at a place during that time uh, and. I remember that when I would would go to church, I would um, I I or when, not when I go to church, when I go to work, I would typically go without wearing my garments, um, and I don't think anything in in the way I said uh, things at work would be construed as as very Mormon. And I remember very explicitly in mid November or early December, while I was at work, this guy asked me if I was LDS. And I I don't know why, but I remember very, like, this is the first time in my life when I'd been asked that question and it wasn't an automatic yes, right? And I think I said something like kind of or like sort of or uh, like something very ambiguous. Um, But I, and I remember when those words came out of my mouth, I was like, wow, like this is how far I've come, right? I was, I should still be on a mission in Bulgaria right now. And here I am working, telling someone that, I'm not sure if I'm this thing that has been a huge part of my identity my whole life. Uh, and so it's pretty stunning thing for me to say that out loud. <clears throat> but um, then I went up to Utah State in January, and I had a friend. This who, is January of 20... This year. 19. Yeah. So January this year, went up to Utah State, and I had a friend who... I was living next door to her, so we were in the same ward. So it was kind of the same situation as as my parents, where the only reason I went to church at all really was because I didn't really want the questions. But I think I spoke enough at that time to where she probably would have figured out where I was at, right? So who was I fooling by going to church for two hours? Um, or it, more, it was actually more like one hour. Like I definitely would not go to second hour, um, and sometimes I would, you know— make it about 20 minutes into sacrament meeting and and say goodbye. Um, But, and then other weeks I would make up excuses about how I was sick or something like that to, to get out of going to church for that semester. Um, And yeah, I was, I remember I've probably written um, 20 letters of resignation to the church. um, And a lot of them during that time. Um, because I, I was like, you know, eventually I'm, I'm going to be out. That's where, that's where the path was heading. It was definitely going that direction. I didn't see, I think if you'd asked me in February or March of this year, if I would be a member of the church five years from now, the odds would have been very, very low of that possibility. Um, and then also significantly, I think it was middle of February of this year, I decided to come out and I came out on social media and, People were were very kind in their reactions. Um, didn't really get any negative feedback, and that was that was really nice. But I honestly 
wanted to when I put that coming out post to also include that I was leaving the church, right? Kill two birds with one stone. So that way I wouldn't have to deal with it. But for some reason, I don't know if it was late. I don't know why, but I did not include that in, in my post. And now I'm very grateful that I did it. Um, but I was, I was contemplating it to, to say both those things. And so I finished the semester. Well, so about a month left in the semester, I came upon, uh, work from Terrell and Fiona Givens. Um, they've written prolifically about LDS theology and really resonated with their concepts, uh, of, of a God who weeps. It's found in Moses seven, a, a God who is vulnerable, a God who's not punitive, a God who, who walks with us and, and cares for us. And this beautiful theological concept kind of made alive again, the possibility of me remaining in the church. This idea of there is so much depth to this religion outside of the culture, outside of the, the hard things that is worth continuing to pursue. And I, re I remember it was definitely, uh, this was April-ish. It's when I started to really actually consider, you know what, maybe I'll actually stay in rather than leaving was inevitable. <clears throat> um, before we went live, um, Kyle told me a little bit about this. I wrote down the what he's talking about now, culture versus theology. And uh, the difference in our church between our culture and our theology, and that has resonated with me, um, just the power of our restored doctrine and the things that came through the Restoration, some really messy parts of the Restoration, Yep. Um, and I think we need to honor that and validate that and not brush that under the carpet or whatever the analogy is, and you've had to deal with that face-on. Um, and there may be unanswerable questions, and that may be the very best thing we can do is not say there's an answer. Mm -hmm. um, but I love the power of our doctrine, and I love—I got tears in my eyes, actually, as you went through and described the God that I believe in, Kyle. The God that walks with us, the God that weeps, the God that's vulnerable. I think the God I believe in feels pain. Mm-hmm. I don't think pain's a sign of weakness. I don't think it's a mortal thing we need to overcome. So I have to think, I feel pain for my kids and my wife and the people that are close to me in my life. So wouldn't a loving Heavenly Father feel pain? Yeah. And I love that of all the things that brought you back or kept you, it was our theology. Yeah. And I think... I think our theology has the potential to do that for a lot of people. I just wish that sometimes we'd stop obsessing over such little, little matters uh, that I consider cultural and just really go back to the, the big picture. And that is Mormonism offers such a beautiful picture of heavenly parents and um, the conception of the atonement of within Mormonism and, and the spirit within Mormonism. Like those are such beautiful fundamental concepts that I feel like we, we dilute them too often by focusing on things that, that aren't important. And I think a lot of people leave because we've kind of flipped our priorities. I, I, at least I can say on, on occasion, like 
my experience in the culture has flipped the priorities from God and Jesus to, you know, cultural aspects that really aren't that important in the long run. Talk about the atonement. What what does the atonement mean to you? And I've been thinking a lot about this phrase that Christ descended, you know, below everything. And so even as a gay Latter-day Saint, he's descended in a spot where he understands your road as a gay Latter-day Saint. Does that does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we have such a beautiful vision of Christ. Um, Terrell and Fiona Givens, they, they've talked about how um, originally in the Book of Mormon, it, it said that Christ heals us from our woundedness. I, it's now been, I, I think it now says Christ saves us from our sins, but heals us from our woundedness. And when I vision the atonement as helping heal us rather than save us from some eternal damnation. That helps me to have Jesus in my life every day rather than saying, well, I need to be like perfect. And like Jesus will make up the difference, you know, at at that final judgment, that's when Jesus's atonement will come into my life. But the days when I struggle, the days when I feel very little value and worth that Jesus is with me on those days that Jesus is trying to heal me and help me on those days. It, it gives this power to his life and to his death and to his resurrection that I don't think can be captured in this idea of Jesus just saving us from some eternal misery, because I think Jesus doesn't just want to help us reach, uh, reach heaven. I think Jesus wants us to have heaven today and make today the best day possible. I think it's all about those, those daily acts and those daily decisions and, and, and things like that, that Jesus actually cares about and that God cares about. And as someone who's, who's gay and a member of this church, that means a lot because to know that Jesus has been through what I've been through and that he's going through it with me and comforting me through it is it's, it's really nice to know that I'm not alone in that. Talk about the word grace. Share with our listeners your thoughts on that word. I really like the talk by Brad Wilcox um, about how Jesus doesn't just make up the difference, how Jesus is the difference. I think that for so long in my life, I believed that Jesus, that basically if I gave my all and that I lived my life as perfectly as I possibly could, that Jesus would, you know, he, he would, it's like you put in your, it, you have a bill for like a hundred dollars and three cents. And I put in my hundred dollars, right. And Jesus would come in with his three cents and all would be well, celestial kingdom and, and everything would be great. But for me, I realized that with grace, Jesus is in everything. Jesus is in my happiest and saddest moments. Jesus is in the miracles of creation. Um, I mean, I, I see our Heavenly Father and, and our Heavenly Parents and, and Jesus in, in all of our creations, and I feel Jesus' grace just by by walking outside and, and passing by the beautiful fall trees. Like, I, I think that it's grace just for us to be alive, for us to to be on this earth. And 
so I don't know. I think that grace for me refers to the holistic and all encompassing mission of Jesus Christ. And that's why I resonate with it so much and why I love it so much. I want to come back to a phrase you said right at the beginning of this segment. I think you said Jesus doesn't make up the difference. Jesus is the difference. Did you say that? Yeah, that's it. Brad Wilcox said that in his fantastic talk. And yeah, I I think... That's a big difference. And then you went on to illustrate that Jesus doesn't make up the difference. And back to your money analogy, Jesus is the difference. Yeah. That to me, I haven't heard that before. I should listen to Brad Wilcox more. Absolutely. Um, a good talk. But I love that. Um, and I just love the way that makes me feel, Kyle, because I feel like I'm going to be, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also when we start thinking of grace, it helps us extend grace to other people. Um, I think for so long I judged other people by you know, I'm this far ahead of them on the pathway to the celestial kingdom, right? Like they need to do this and this and this to fix themselves because, and Jesus is going to have to make up a big difference for them compared to me, right? But once we all realize we're indebted to God, and King Benjamin talks about this very beautifully in the Book of Mormon, we're all indebted to the same God. We're all, uh, we can't make up the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a mockery of the atonement to think that we can in any way. Um, And that Jesus is so willing to give without cost the opportunity to progress to reach eternity. Like that's a really amazing principle. And I think helps us to avoid the, the competition feeling uh, that often comes with the, the eternities. Because I, I think that once we all realize we're all equally indebted, and all equally reliant on Jesus, we can focus more on our individual journey with him rather than trying to project onto other people. Other parts of our theology that resonate with you? I really love the idea of of Zion, of building Zion throughout the world, not just in our church, but in whatever community we're in. I, I love the idea that when we knit ourselves together in love and compassion that we're able to truly um, truly able to build that Zion Zion place and it, for me I've always thought of the second coming as this really scary fire and brimstone type scenario but once I start thinking about the story of Enoch um, which the restoration scriptures gives us right this really beautiful story of them building a community that was so beautiful that they were lifted into heaven. Like for me, when I start thinking of, you know, what can I do today to do that? Rather than focusing on, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, instead thinking, you know what? Like this is not inevitable doom. I can build Zion today. And that's that's what we're working towards is, is towards building a Zion community. It, it definitely helps me to focus on the good and not the bad. And I just really love that Zion concept. And I also think that it, it helps me to focus on, on the positives with my ward members when I may struggle with some of the things they may say or do, um, realizing that we're all building Zion together and we're all struggling together. Uh, it, it, it goes back to that grace concept. 
Jesus extended grace to us, we get to extend grace to others within within Zion. And that's really awesome. I love your understanding of our doctrine. I hope you have a chance to write. You could become a writer. I know you've written quite a bit already. You have a great ability to understand our doctrine and communicate it and live it. Well, thank so I, you. I don't know if you see yourself as a writer someday, Kyle. Uh, I've I've always thought that once I make a lot of money, that becoming a, a theology writer would be fun. So yeah. we'll we'll maybe revisit that down the road. So you just turned twenty one. Um, it would be fascinating to bring your eighteen year old self or your seventeen year old self here to the table. It's a round table in our room, and I would think your seventeen year old self would if he saw the next four years would be kind of stunned. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, Very true. Just your journey with the church, your journey writing 20 potential resignation letters, serving two missions, coming home twice, and now sitting here talking about why you stay a member of the church is a fascinating story. Um, do you, th- do you think you're off track? Do you think, or do you think this is just kind of where heavenly thought or thought you'd be at this point? I don't think that our heavenly parents have this predetermined plan for our lives. That's one thing I love about Mormonism is this idea of it's it's all very open and that there's no predestination, right? So I don't I don't know if there was one plan for my life, but I can say with and I don't like saying the word I I know, I don't like the language of certitude that we have so often in Mormonism, but I do feel very strongly to the point of almost knowing that I have felt a call to stay in this church. And I think that call comes from, from our heavenly parents and from the spirit. And so I, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. I I definitely feel that very deeply within my soul. And that's not to say that other people won't have different feelings and different experiences. This is just for me. But I, I do think that once we allow time to just be still, uh, for so long, when I came home from Pittsburgh, it was all about making a statement. It was all about being very definitive. But once I allowed myself a place to be still and listen for the voice of God in my life, um, that's when I really started to feel this call to stay within our church and a call to accept Jesus and his mission more in my life. So I feel very happy about where I'm at, and I definitely feel like our heavenly parents are, are guiding me in this journey. Do you think you could have gotten to where you are right now without the journey you've been on the last couple of years? No, I'm, I'm very certain about that. Why? Um, I think our experiences help us to have empathy for so long. I was so sure. I remember I, I would give very strong certain testimonies in church uh, from the time I was very, very, very young, I knew all the answers in Sunday school. And I was, I didn't have a lot of empathy for those who didn't know. I remember when I was in, in, I was like 17 or so, someone got up and said, I don't know. And they were very vulnerable in testimony meeting. And I judged them pretty harshly for that. They, they don't know. You don't know. Why are you at church if you don't know? But I think that felling so much, um, I mean, I've, come home really from two missions. That's not something a lot of people do. I've had to um, have to rebuild bridges with family members. I've had to um, come to terms with my own sexuality. Like Things like that have built within me an 
and empathy that I don't think I would have gotten through any other other means at all. So, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that without every experience that has happened over the last few years, I, I probably wouldn't be here and I probably wouldn't have as much empathy as I have for those at the margins of our church. Yeah, I just really love where you are and I recognize, I love your answer, Kyle. Um, I just, it's really remarkable where you are. Um, I'm just struck by the spirit of your story and how you've navigated this. But I recognize that, you know, you've been through the ringer to get to where you are. You know, all the phrases come to me from the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith's life and lives of other really hard people, the dark night of the soul. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a parent, I wouldn't wish that on my own kid. You know, if you're my own kid, I would never want you to go through what you've gone through. So I would naturally want to intervene and solve all of this. And I'm sure your own parents have wanted to, but our heavenly parents have this long view at the 40,000 foot level and allow these things to unfold for you. And I like your answer. You wouldn't take it back. Nope. I mean, my impression is that this, you know, you were never meant to serve both missions. You know, this was, I don't know how you feel about that. I just look at, you know, what your two mission experiences, both coming home early in different ways, the tra- the anger, the trauma, the pain of that, and then the the way that you've taken that pain and anger and have developed Christ in even more Christ-like attributes because of those very difficult situations is a testimony to your character and testimony to the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, really difficult experiences logically lead to anger. I would want to honor all the anger someone feels because that's a pretty normal human emotion for that follows pain. Absolutely. But I think where agency kicks in is how we handle anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been pretty open with your wish you'd handled some of that better, but I'd be pretty, give you a lot of grace. <laughs> um, and I've, I just, it's, it's really one, and even, you know, just where you are right now. Um, but I think it's a testament to your spiritual character and your ability to access the atonement of Jesus Christ. And yeah, abs- like I think without Jesus, I I definitely would not be in this position. I'd still be very angry, very bitter, because I I do think the experiences I went through were hard. Um, but I think Jesus and our Heavenly Parents have this really special ability to be able to turn our suffering into something so beautiful. And I, I love in the New Testament when it talks about how the trial of your faith is worth more, more than gold. And I remember reading that as a 14-year-old in seminary and thinking, I I don't know what this is, but now having gone through many trials in my faith, I can definitely say they are worth way more than gold. What would you say to other, do you like, two questions, do you like the label early return missionary? Um, Is there a better label or should we even not even use that label? And second, what would you say to other early return missionaries? Uh, I'm fine with that label just because I don't know what another label would be for it. I think I, the the advice I'd give is to own it. Um, I've had experiences where I've tried to manipulate the math in in my head to make people think that I served two years simply because I I was ashamed of the fact that I hadn't. Um, but I, so I'd say I'd say own it. 
I, I think you don't have to tell people why you came home, um, but don't try to lie about how you served 18 months or two years. Just just own it because that's honesty really is. If people really love you, being honest is so important. Uh, the second thing I'd say is you're not measured by how many months you served um, and you're not measured by a letter saying that you completed a full-time mission. You're not measured by giving a homecoming talk and having all your family there, you know, saying, look at our grandson or granddaughter and they're so special and aren't they just amazing and they're checking off all the boxes. That's not what you're measured by. What you're measured by is your progress. And I think no matter how long someone served, um, no matter how hard it was, no matter where they're at in their faith journey, there are parts of their mission that define their life and that, for good or bad, can help them as they progress on their faith journey. And so looking for those diamonds in the rough um, from your mission that can help you on your faith journey. And never, I, I, I think it's so sad to me when people just try to, because they didn't serve the full time, that they just dismiss all the amazing experiences they had. That's, that's really sad. It's a great answer. <clears throat> Hope you know how good that answer was. Talk about, was it helpful for you to write those 20 resignation letters? Was there a measure of, because sometimes I'd invite the YSAs to write as a therapeutic principle to sort of get out mm -hmm. the pain. I don't, was, do you, just thoughts on that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you need to write a resignation letter, but for me at least I love to write. And so um, it is very therapeutic to be able to put those words on a piece of paper and I think it's fun to go back to them. In fact, in, in preparation for this today, I, I went back into my Google Drive and found one of those letters. And uh, looking back and realizing where you were before and validating where you were at before, but also comparing it to where you're, you are now and um, how the anger has subsided and, and seeing the progress in that regard. So I don't know if I'd say write a resignation letter, but I think writing is very therapeutic and definitely something I'd recommend. I think that sometimes when you are able to put pen to paper and you're not thinking about how is this person who I'm talking to going to respond to this, but you can just be open and honest on that piece of paper, uh, I think that's super helpful. At least it was in my experience. Yeah, and I think of that as with relationship challenges. Sometimes you want to communicate with someone you feel and sometimes just writing that out, even if you never send that email or send that letter is helpful. And then, then as far as just being able to then eventually have that conversation or move on. So I like what you did there. And I like that you went back and just recognized, you know, where you are today versus where you are then. And I like that it went slow enough that I think one of the challenges is is to slow things down. That's always been my general advice to people in a very difficult, emotionally charged situation, potentially with where you are. You've got all these things kind of coming at you at the same time. Um, and I was never your priesthood leader, obviously, but my general impression would be to try to slow everybody down, mm -hmm. um, especially get the anger, get that phase of anger passed. Um to be able to then make thoughtful decisions about the best way forward. Yeah, I, I think that not many very good decisions are made in anger. Um, and so even if someone decides to step away from the church, doing it in a position of anger is, it always leads to regret. 
you may not regret leaving the church necessarily, but you may regret the the way you you go about it and the way you yeah. handle yourself during it. I know that's how I was during that that process of leaving. Was you know I would I was so angry all the time, and like I said, I I think it led to a lot of disparaging comments towards family members and and towards friends that I I deeply regret. So definitely making decisions from a place of anger is not something I recommend. Um, talk about what. How do you handle your future as a gay Latter-day Saint? Um, before we went live, you said you're not going to marry a woman. No. <laughs> um, so you've kind of closed that option. Do you just do you, How do you handle that? Do you, do you just try not to think very far in the future and just say, I'm just going to live this period of time? I uh, Paul in, in the New Testament talks about learning to be content in whatever state you're at. And... I think that for so long with my sexuality and with my membership in the church, I was not content with being in a position of decisive, absolute knowing where I was going to end up. Um, but with my sexuality, at least, I just take things a day at a time. I I do what, what feels right today. Um, and for me, that looks like um, staying in. I. I don't know what that holds for the future, but I do feel called to stay actively involved in in the church at this time in my life, and I anticipate that's how it'll be in the future, but I'm not going to make any big statements because I know life can change and life can throw curveballs, but just taking things a day at a time, a step at a time, and being content with where I'm at. Uh, it's definitely made it a lot easier to stay because I'm I'm living today. I'm trying to connect to my Savior today. I'm trying to help other people today. And that's really all I need to do. Any thoughts on why you are gay? Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've had a conversation with Heavenly Father about this, if he's answered or if you just... Or, I just don't know any personal revelation you've received um, while you're gay. I don't know. I, now I'm going to be asking that question. Um, I, I honestly feel like we're kind of just subject to environmental factors um, that, that lead to our, our sexuality. I don't think God you know, puts names in a hat and pre-selects who's going to be gay and who's going to be straight. But I do know that however it works that I've been put in a position to help people on the margins um and have empathy for them I mean I'm a I'm a white man with you know and that's a pretty privileged position in in our faith and in the world and so but you know being gay I'm kind of hanging out by those people at the margins, the people who How don't cool really feel. How cool is that? And it's, it's, there, there are some cool people at the margins of our faith. I've had, a, I've had some friends who've stepped away and, and things like that, and I'll always, always say to them, you're making the decision for you, but it's really cool being out here at the, at the margins, and I really wish you were here with us because there are so many awesome people um, that once you no longer fit in the, the center of that chapel is the, the quote-unquote ideal, typical member of the church. There are just so many awesome people you can meet, so many awesome experiences. And um, I, some of my most spiritual experiences have come 
from being with those at the margins. I was at the Sunstone Symposium over the summer, and they did this this hymn sing along during lunch, and I kind of just stumbled into it. And um, there there was a hymn they sang, which I think is in the Community of Christ hymnal and in some Protestant hymnals. And for some reason, the words of that it was one of the most spiritual experiences I've had singing that song, and I listened to that song quite often. Um, and I would never have ever heard that song before if I hadn't been connecting with people at the margins and I probably wouldn't have been at the margins if I hadn't been gay. So, um, I, I don't know if that was all part of some larger plan or if that's just how it came to be, but it, it led me to an experience that is unforgettable and I, I wouldn't trade that experience. It's a great story. Um, as you talked about the margins, I remember hearing it. It's a New York Times author, and I forgot his name. He talked about this principle of the edge of the ins on the on the edge of the inside. <laughs> so it's sort of like if the church is a circle, there's the core of kind of band of brothers in the middle that maybe are what you described as the group that really fits in and everything clicks. But then there's this group of people in the church that are kind of on the on the edge of the inside. So they're almost out. They're not wanting to leave the church, but mm-hmm. since they're on, on the edge of the inside, meaning they're still in the church, they don't see those outside of the church. They see all those outside of the church uh, as, and they humanize them easier and they see goodness in other faiths and and they understand why other people step away. But they have this unique bridge building ability because they're on the edge of the inside, meaning you're in the church and and being on the edge of the inside doesn't isn't a measure of commitment. Mm-hmm. It's just where you kind of are. Yeah. Um, so you're equally as committed as right in the middle of the inside, but you just have this worldview that allows you to see um, maybe, I don't want to be critical of those that are in the middle of the middle and that they don't see as well as perhaps you do, but I do agree that you have a, an empathy for people on the margins. Um, the Pool of Bethesda copy is hanging in this podcast room, and I look at that a lot as a visual of the you know, the marginalized and where Christ is. And he seemed to love to be with the very people you're talking about. Yeah. Any things in closing you'd like to share with our listeners, Kyle? Um, as, as you were talking about those, uh, the, the edges, I, I thought of a story that I'd heard about uh, a bishop during Brigham Young's presidency, and they apparently got in an argument, and Brigham Young said something along the lines of, well, uh, Bishop, I think his name was Woolley, I think, uh, are you going to go apostatize now or, or something like that? And uh, Brother Woolley responded and said something like, if this was your church, I may, but this is God's church, and I have just as much a right to be here as you do. And I think that's a pretty defiant response, obviously. Um, and I don't think, and I don't mean to be defiant, but this is our church for anybody at the margins, whether it's as a faith crisis, someone who's LGBTQ, someone who is, is a woman and doesn't feel at place. Or, I mean, even white straight men, like there, no matter where you're, you're at demographically, you can be on the edges at some point in your faith journey. It's, it's your church. And so own your religion um, be be a part of it. Actively engage. You don't need to know all the answers to actively engage and to build Zion. Um, this is your church, and so be a part of it if if you can. I know some people emotionally that it's it's not possible and they they step away. But if you can own, own your religion, be a part of it because it's your church, 
and I I hate to see when people feel so squeezed out and forget that they have a right to contribute to this community. I love that. And um, let me read this quote I read quite a bit on the podcast, The Wounded Healer, and that's who we all are, but Kyle's been brave enough to share some of his woundedness with us. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So here you are at 21, and you know a few really difficult deserts. And there's woundedness in those deserts. Um, But now you're the wounded healer, and you can authentically lead people out of some of these deserts. And that's why just having you on the podcast is a real privilege for me. And you guys, just on a personal note, when I see someone like Kyle at 21, um, and some of you that are younger in our church that are making this work with really complicated reasons, it just gives me so much hope for the future of our world and our church. Um, Yeah, I'm 58. I'm never, you know, but I have... I really believe in the younger members of our church. Um, my kids are those younger members, and they're awesome. But it's it's people like you, Kyle, um, who have walked really difficult deserts that I never had to walk at your age. I'm not sure it was possible for me to walk some of those deserts at your age, um, especially as far as church history. We just didn't know our church history. And so you and other millennials are forced to sort of understand our church history and navigate that. And but where you've come out and with your sexuality is just such a great spot. And it just gives me so much hope um, for the future of our church. And it's a cre- I don't know if I could have done what you've done if I had walked your road. I don't know if I would have had whatever you have inside of you. I was going to say spiritual maturity. Um, and we both recognize that others that have walked into these deserts have not been able to find a way back into our church and Perhaps we, you have a lot of, and I do have empathy for them because I recognize how difficult it is sometimes to stay. Um, but I do think stories like yours that know these deserts and have walked those deserts and have found a way really through the theology of our church to stay and a real feeling that they're called to stay is very helpful for our listeners, helpful for me. So you have a great life ahead of you, Kyle. And you are an unusual 21-year-old to be able to be where you are and the things you've learned and the insights into our theology, you've not just relied on the culture of our church and kind of the momentum to just move you along in a kind of a traditional path. You've had to really figure things out for yourself um, because at times that's the only thing that was left for you was you and your relationship with your heavenly parents and Christ that was there with you. And I think that's refined you in a wonderful way. And yeah, I wouldn't, I will, if I, I'm glad it happened. <laughs> um, even though it's been painful. So any last thoughts? I'll give you the last word before we sign off. Well, just on behalf of everyone who listens to the podcast, like I mentioned earlier, the the community you've created and the work you've done is appreciated by so many. And um, I hope we'll all be a part of creating a more inclusive church for, for the future. So thank you, Kyle Fryant, if I'm saying your last name right. Got it. Um, for helping us to create Zion, to use Kyle's word. Um, And that's really a goal of this podcast. And thank you for our listeners who are helping to do that. 
I get a lot of messages. I got a message from a brand new Release Society president this week and said, you know, the podcast is one of the key things that's helped me prepare for this new calling. And But it's really guests like Kyle and all of you that are listening and coming on that make this podcast work. So thank our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.